Welcome to Crossview Radio, a podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, as you know, we are um, on our second of a four-part series on biblical manhood. This is a series that was done about 15 years ago by Dr. Jim Berg, and uh, it's something that I've uh, kept with me um, for, uh, for quite a while and continue to refer to it again and again uh, for myself as well as um, for others. I uh, like to pass these uh, MP3s out, and so uh, basically just wanted to put them up here uh, so that they were available in a more accessible format. Um, the The topic of biblical manhood is uh, only becoming increasingly important, and uh, one of the things to note is that even the world is seeing the uh, damaging effects of what happens when men advocate their roles and responsibilities. I recently finished uh, a book uh, not written by a Christian that I know of uh, entitled Life Without Father, and uh, statistic after statistic shows again and again uh, that uh, men who are absent or who are un- uninvolved in their homes, uh, really it, it produces uh, detrimental effects in the lives of their children, uh, in the lives of the next generation. Uh, we, have, uh, we are living in a society of effeminate men and um, men who are pacified uh, and subdued by cheap imitations of the real thing. Uh, men who are uh, addicted to um, video games. They uh, can build and manufacture things in virtual reality, but not in the real world. Uh, Men who are addicted to pornography, they're pursuing shadows and imitations uh, and distortions of the things that God has created and called good. Uh, And this really sidelines men, and it really destroys... Um, the next generation, and it destroys culture. And so for these reasons and, and more, um, uh, this is uh, an increasingly important topic. And so um, uh, this is, as I mentioned, the second of four um, uh, episodes in this conference. And so um, I hope it's a blessing to you. And without any further ado, here it is. I like to hear our women's groups as they sing here on Sunday from time to time, but I really love hearing the men's groups. There is something about the strength of men, and I appreciate what Steve Farrar said about that. We looked at it last night, how uh, so much of the worship today is feminine. It's gushy and sentimental and halted. We have a great God, and He's powerful, and He does love us. But we praise him with our whole hearts, not with a gushy kind of um, mentality. And I I appreciate that emphasis, appreciate these men and their singing, and Tim for putting together the music this morning. Well, I hope you got to sleep both hours last night, and uh, glad to have you back here this morning. And um, we will have, as uh, Pastor mentioned, we will have... um, uh, post-breakfast time here in a, in a little while. There's plenty of food left out there. Mark, Mark Davis uh, always gets plenty of it for us and at a good price, and, and uh, so it's a, it'll be a, a good time. Well, we looked, um, began last night on this two-part 
session on our emphasis on the essential vision of biblical manhood. And we said that the nature of godly dominion is God-fearing, gospel-centered, and grace-enabled dominion. And I'm using all of those phrases to help us focus in on what it means to have godly dominion. It's, it's a God-fearing dominion. And just to recap a couple of things last night, um, the responsibility God has given us is often heavy. It is often very crushing. And I appreciate what Mark said this morning about uh, we, we've got to take the responsibility. And I, I think sometimes when I'm, when I'm counseling with a man, and there have been times in my own life where I had the same mentality, um, sometimes we treat our cars, our automobiles, better than we do our wife and our children. If we hear a knock under the hood, an unfamiliar knock, some, there's some knocks that we just kind of get used to, but an unfamiliar knock, and it's, you know, and it's really unusual, and we don't know what to do about it because we're not a mechanic. Uh, boy, most of us don't just keep driving it until something blows. I mean, that, that can be the water pump that's knocking that badly, and that's, you, don't, you don't drive long without a water pump. And um, without cracking your block with your engine overheating. And, and generally, when something like that is happening and we don't know what it is and we don't know what to do about it, we go find somebody to help us. <clears throat> we, go, we take it to the dealer or to whoever fixes our car and, and we tell them, I got this, this is going on, I don't know what it is, but fix it, it doesn't sound good to me. And, and we'll take that kind of initiative and that kind of responsibility to make sure our car's running okay. But our wife can have the same problem with, with, uh, excessive worry or depression or something like that and goes on and on and on for years and we don't get any help. We say, well, I don't know what to do with it. Well, we don't know what to do with our cars either, but we go find some help about that. And we need to take that kind of responsibility, not just to keep our car tuned up, but to keep our wife and our children on track. And if we don't know what to do, <clears throat> there are plenty of books, there are plenty of videos, there are plenty of MP3s to read. In fact, um, years ago, you know, 20 and 30 years ago, I, I would hear men say, well, yeah, I, I just don't like to read. Well, that may be true, but we don't have to just read anymore. You can watch a whole lot of stuff, and you can listen to a whole lot of stuff. And there really isn't any excuse for us not getting up to speed about what should we be doing in our families, because there is a lot of, a lot of material out there and, and available for us. Um, so the godliness that we're looking at here, we're defining as God-fearing. That, and God-fearing that even though we have these hard things we're called on to do, there's a God in heaven who is great. And he is the one who empowers us and gives us the hope that we can accomplish what most of us, not only just in our families, but in our labor, in our works. I mean, I am, I am regularly overwhelmed just, I mean, it's a consistent thing. Just stay overwhelmed. Well, you know what that does? It drives me to God, and that's what He intends. And He wants us to be God-fearing, and that means we're going to God and for His strength, and that is where we find our hope. And so we, talked, we looked at God-fearing last night. I want us to focus this morning in this initial, in, in this session, on the gospel-centered and grace-enabled, what those two things mean. Well, in, in godly dominion here, gospel-centered means that a man must know his purpose for God. Now, keep in mind, we're, we're talking about these things for ourselves, but also for our sons and our grandsons. That, eight, that six-year-old grandson who was here last night with my son-in-law, 
needs to know his place under God. And he needs to know his purpose for God. Where is he going to learn that? He's going to learn that in his home. And he's going to learn that from from his father and from his mother. And that means that we've got to know it to be able to pass it on. I want us to think in this way. Again, gospel-centered means a man must know his purpose for God. We've got to know what God's purpose is and where we fit into that. And some of you over at the university have heard me talk about this a little bit. Um, When we think of God's mission on the earth, what is God trying to do on the earth? He only has one mission. God is on a mission to redeem and restore fallen people to the likeness of His Son, to the praise of His glory. Gentlemen, that is the only thing He's doing on the earth. When He answers our prayers, when when Jesus was on this earth and when He raised dead people and He healed lepers and He healed blind people, why was He doing that? To demonstrate who He was and that He was on a mission to redeem and restore fallen people to the likeness of His Son to the praise of His glory. And that's the only thing God is doing on this earth. When God brings you and me into hardship and we are believers, we've been redeemed, what is He trying to do through that hardship? Restore us to the likeness of His Son to the praise of His glory. When you and I sin, what is God wanting to do? Restore us to the likeness of His Son, to the praise of His glory. This is the only thing God is doing on the earth. And that means that must become our mission as well. This, and this, when I say gospel-centered, the gospel isn't just about keeping us out of hell, <clears throat> although that's a significant part of it. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ is this mission of redeeming and restoring fallen people to the likeness of His Son to the praise of His glory. It is about our salvation. It is about the gospel is about our sanctification, our transformation into, uh, into Christ <clears throat> as much as possible on this earth and then our ultimate glorification to become entirely like Christ uh, when we enter heaven. All of that is gospel work. And so when you're dealing with your sons about something that's, that's going on in their lives that, that needs to be addressed, you are doing gospel work. All of this is the gospel. And what that means is that, for, for you and me, is that you and I must see ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ because He's trying to do that gospel work in every one of us. He's trying, he has redeemed me and is trying to restore me to the likeness of His Son, to the praise of His glory. And, and I must embrace my role as a disciple under Jesus. But not only that, I must embrace my role as a disciple maker. <clears throat> that as a, uh, with, 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 ch- with my children, with my wife, with whatever influence God gives me in my responsibilities and in, in ministry and, and here in this morning, my role is a disciple maker. Our pastor's role is a disciple maker. Every one of our roles is a disciple maker. And if we're going to be truly gospel-centered in our dominion, in our responsibility taking, you and I must see ourselves as disciples under Christ and disciple makers for Christ. And that puts us right smack dab in the center of what God is doing on the earth. And if you and I are not disciples, we're doing something else other than what God is doing in the earth. And if we're not disciple makers, you and I are doing something else other than what God is doing in the earth. And you and I are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of how well we advanced his mission. And this is the only thing he's doing. So we've got to embrace that in our own lives and then embrace our responsibility. Maybe this is a dad thing because I've heard other men tell me the same thing, but I did not 
fully understand the responsibility of rearing children until we brought Kirsten, our oldest daughter, home from the hospital. Um, you know, we'd been talking about this, and my wife is carrying this baby for nine months, and she's thinking a lot about it, and, you know, we're fixing up a, you know, a crib and all that kind of stuff. But the responsibility of it didn't hit me till I held her in my hands, and I thought, I remember thinking, now what do I do? And I, we brought her home from the hospital, and I spent that weekend while Patty and Kirsten were sleeping most of that weekend. I'm trying to figure out what is it I'm supposed to do with this little child in my hands. And I, I took out a legal pad, I think on paper, and I took out a legal pad, and I just started writing down, what do I, and I thought, what do I, I wrote down, what do I want her to be like in 21 years? And so I started writing down all kinds of character qualities and things, and it, as I began to examine those more, they looked strikingly like the fruit of the Spirit, and I thought, that's it. I, I, I want to rear a spirit-filled woman that God can use. And, um, and so then I began saying, God, how, how am I going to do that? And I, I looked at passage after passage. I, I finally ended up in Deuteronomy 6, and that's the passage in front of you here that you've looked at, I'm sure. But this really began to focus my attention on what my job was. Because Moses said to the fathers of that day in Deuteronomy 6, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou walkest in the way, and when thou risest up, or when thou sittest in the house, and when thou walkest in the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And I thought, that's, that's my mission right there then. That's, that's the way to accomplish it. And I thought, what, one of the things I've got to do is saturate the experiences, and this is what I wrote down in 1981, 1976 when we brought her home from the hospital, that my job was to saturate her experiences and her environment with the ways and the words of the living God. And by doing that, then perhaps we could see God raise up another generation to saturate her experiences, lying, lying down, rising up, walking in the way, and her environment, plastering these things around the house, and in other words, filling the house with this. Saturating, saturation is an important point. You don't just talk about God at special formal times. You saturate your home with the ways and the, and, and the experience, excuse me, you saturate the experiences and the environment with the ways and the words of the living God. And what that meant then was I was to be a God-loving example. I needed to become, in my daughter's eyes, the most God-loving person she knew and become a word-filled teacher. These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And then ministry-minded. Every point of contact saturated with the words of God. And by the way, this is what I looked for in candidates in my sons-in-laws. I wanted to know whether they were serious about God accomplishing his mission in them and were they serious about seeing that mission of God accomplished in other people. Because I had been serious about that with my daughters and I didn't want to turn them, my daughters over to somebody who wasn't serious about continuing that mission of God in their lives. 
In fact, this wasn't just an optional window, window dressing. This matter of whether they saw themselves as a disciple and as a disciple maker, this was a deal breaker. If they didn't have it, they didn't get in. And that wasn't just my opinion. That's what my daughters wanted. They did not want a husband who didn't know how to disciple them. Because as a shepherd of the home, he's to lead them beside still waters and he, as a shepherd, as a good shepherd, and to, to restore their souls. He has to know how to restore their souls. And if he doesn't know how to restore his own, he certainly doesn't know how to restore anybody else's. So these are crucial things. We've got to teach our sons so that they can be the kinds of disciple makers for their families in, in the days ahead. And point D there says we are to be saturating the environment and experiences of our children with the words and the ways of the living God lest they forget the Lord their God. And another way of thinking that, of that is that dad is to be the chief greenhouse keeper. The home is a greenhouse for growing spiritual plants. There's a lot of other things we do in our house. You know, we, we eat in our house and we sleep in our house and we play together in our house and we work together in our house. But the main thing we do in our houses, gentlemen, is grow spiritual plants. Because God's on a mission. And we're to be involved in that mission. And it's my responsibility as a greenhouse keeper to take dominion, the responsibility of my home. And that means you regulate the, the folks who work in the greenhouse at the university. I mean, they regulate the temperature in there. They make sure it's just right for growing the kinds of plants that they're growing. They check for diseases on the plants. And they prune the plants and they fertilize the plants and they water the plants and they fix the holes in the greenhouse so that the, the elements don't get in. I, I don't know whose house this greenhouse is behind, but it's a pretty massive greenhouse. Um, but th- this, is, this is what the greenhouse keeper does. He regulates everything in there so that stuff grows the way it's supposed to grow. Well, that's what we have to do in our homes as well. And that means sometimes that we have to put our foot down because of worldly elements that are penetrating into the greenhouse. And we have to address the diseases, the attitudes, and the values that we see in, in our wife and children. And that may mean that we have to insist that our children take music lessons or something until a certain age. We, we, we say, I know, what, I know what needs to be developed in their lives. And so we, we have to insist on certain things happening. We, we made it a point that our daughters took piano from third grade through high school. And we said, if you want to take it beyond high school and college, that's fine. But the third grade through high school will give them enough understanding of piano to be able to minister in a local church, in a small church, or uh, help out with a children's choir, or something of that nature. That was, that was just part of equipping them. Uh, and th- that took a lot of work, it took a, on, on my wife's part in particular. Because your children don't come home from school and say, uh, Mother, please hold all of my calls. Do not allow any interruptions. I have 30 minutes of responsible effort to put in at the piano, and I do not want to be interrupted. This never happened at our house. You know, the, the, reason it got, the reason they put in 30 minutes of responsible effort every day was because it was a mother who had enough discipline to help them become disciplined in it. Now, even now, when they come over to our house, oftentimes one of the first things they'll do is head for the piano. And they would come home in college. They, they lived in the dorms, but they'd come home on the weekend, and the first thing they'd do is head for the piano. They enjoyed it. But there was some structuring that the greenhouse keepers had to do to make sure that that was happening. And by the way, I believe, and there are exceptions to this, but I believe that almost any child can play almost any instrument. 
It's not that, well, my son's not cut out for trumpet. It's probably that mom and dad are not cut out to discipline them to make sure they get it done. And I don't mean spanking them about it, but I mean making sure it happens. We get weary in it as parents, and we say, well, you know, my, my son's just not interested in this or that. doesn't matter if he's interested. Does he need it? We're the ones regulating what goes on in that home, not our children. And I say that kindly, but that's our job. He may have to insist that his children don't take a job that takes them out of church or that keeps them out of mission trips in the summer because that's a part of what we want happening in their lives for their growth and development. And we have to insist, no, son, you can't do that. And that means that he must know his plants well enough to know how to effectively treat their problems. Not all plants are the same. And all of you know that. Those of you who have children, you know, they are so different. In fact, sometimes there's one or two of them you think, did our baby get switched with somebody else's in the, in the nursery at the hospital? Because this one doesn't seem like the rest of the litter here. And what is going on? Well, you have to, not all the plants in the greenhouse are the same. And you've got to know them well. And that means, you, and, and, and oftentimes we gravitate to the son or the daughter who's most like us. And the other ones can just kind of go in, you know, kind of like Topsy in Uncle Tom's cabin. She said, I just growed. Um, we just, uh, we kind of have to do it on our own. Those kids have to do it. No, that shouldn't be that way. They may not be like us in this. I, I grew up in a family of three boys. And then I have three daughters. None of them are like me in the sense that none of them are male. I had a whole lot of things to learn. Uh, my wife was a great blessing in that. Because I did, not, I, did know, I did not think about things the way my daughters thought about things. And I needed my wife's input on that. And by the way, our, our wife is our helper in this greenhouse business when we're re- rearing these spiritual plants. Listen to the input of your wife. Gentlemen, there's no way possible we can know everything and do it all right. There's no way my decisions are 100% right. I need my wife to improve those those percentages. She brings another perspective into this, and one that is uh, very, very valuable. Um, and, and, and as a greenhouse keeper, we have, to ask, we have to ask God constantly for wisdom, do we not? Whether we're, this is our greenhouse of our children, many of, of you in here are not yet married, um, but there are other people that you're discipling, and, or, or should be discipling, and you've got to know those plants well. Um, and, and begging God for wisdom when the tough questions come up. Um, and this is where we have to have the attitude in our house with our children. We've got to tell our children. It doesn't matter what question you ask, Daddy. If I don't know the answer, I will find it. There is a Bible answer for every possible question you could ask. I may not know it right now, but I will find it out. A girl came to me uh, a little while back, and she said, I, I tell you, i got to thank you for something about changing to his image. She said, my, my church back home is using it with the men. And she said, my dad is a blue-collar worker. I, I grew up in a blue-collar home. And um, she said, my dad is a blue-collar worker, and he's never read anything in his life. He, he really doesn't into reading. But he got in this men's group, and they were reading Change into His Image, and he had to read it in order to answer the questions and stay up with the group. And she said, God transformed my dad in that men's Bible study. 
And she said, I used to call home and I would say, and dad would answer the phone. I'd say, dad, I got this problem and I, I don't know what to do about it. I'm having this trouble with this roommate or whatever. And he'd say, honey, just a minute, I'll get your mother on the line. She said, I didn't want to talk to my mother. My mother's great help, but I want my dad helping me. And she said, now I call home and my dad says, well, honey, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find it out. I'll talk to the pastor and I will call you back. She said, my dad is doing what I've always longed for him to do. He's leading me. Well, that's our job. And we get hard questions we don't know the answers for. I, I remember the first hard question that I didn't know the answer for right away. Pastor Vaughn had preached one Sunday night here on uh, family and about children obeying parents. And we were on our way home. Kirsten was, I think, six. Well, she was in first grade, seven. She was in first grade. And as we got out of the car at, at, at our house, she said, Daddy, why do children have to obey parents? Children are people too. You know, and, and you got to, you know, her spirit has not been antagonistic and this kind of thing. So there was something else going on here. And it was, it was a little bit of that, ha I thought of something dad doesn't, you know. And I didn't know how I'm going to answer that right away. And you got to be careful about those things. You can't say, don't talk to your dad like that. You'll never get those questions then. And you'll never get a chance to answer them. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, honey, um, you get your pajamas on and uh, get ready for bed. And uh, when I tuck you in, we'll talk about that. And I'm saying, God help me. How do I tell a first-year-old uh, about this? And, and, um, so, and, and God gave me an answer when, she, when I tucked her in. I said, honey, I want to ask you a question. Can you tell me how to get to the elementary school from our house? And she said, well, yeah. And I said, well, tell me. She said, well, you know, Daddy, we walk out the sidewalk here and go by the dining room. We lived in faculty court at that time. And, and she started explaining it. And she said, well, Daddy, you know. And I said, I know. I, I know how to get there. I said, do you ever get lost on the way to elementary school? She said, no, I know how to get there. I said, okay. And we had been talking about Biltmore. And um, I said, um, tell me how to get to Biltmore. And she said, well, I don't know how to be there. I've, I've never, I know how to get there. I've never been there, Daddy. And I said, well, that, that's my point. I can get you to Biltmore. And the reason God gave parents to children is because children don't know how to get there. And moms and dads, I said, did you know that your mom and your dad, both of us, have been seven years old like you are? And we have been eight, and we have been nine, and we've been 10, and 11, and 12, and a whole lot of other numbers. And we've been all of those things. And so we know how to get you there because we've already been there. And that's why God gave children parents, to help them get there, because children don't know how to get there. They haven't been there yet. And she said, okay, Daddy. And she rolled over and went to sleep. And you, you just you want to look for those teachable moments, but you can't blow them away. Now, if, you, if your son's constantly disrespectful, then you sit down and talk to him about his disrespect. But there are a lot of times in this greenhouse keeping thing where you see something, you don't know what to do with it right away. You say, well, I'll get an answer for you. And you go to God and you find an answer. I can't tell you how many times when I, when I was first married, I, I got to know Dr. Fremont because I worked at the information desk and his, his office was right in the lobby there. And how many times in the first couple of years of our marriage in particular where I didn't know what to do with something and, and I'd knock on his door and I'd say, Doc, you got a minute? I got a problem. I don't know what to do with this and I don't know what to do with that. My wife is saying this and I, that, I, don't, I don't think like that. What? And he would sit me down he would, and he would lecture me. And I learned 
what Mark was talking about is that I may not be responsible for the problem, I may not be at fault for the problem, but I am responsible for its solution because I'm the greenhouse keeper in that, in that place. And we have to prepare our, our children for the new experiences. Um, I remember another time, Kirsten was seventh grade. Most of my illustrations will be about Kirsten because you learn on your first one, you know, and then you, it's just kind of a family policy after that, but you, you're, you're learning for, in this first one. And, and uh, I had come home late from the office one evening, and she was already in bed, and she'd just gotten in bed. She was in seventh grade. And Patty said, uh, Kirsten needs to talk to you about something that's going to happen tomorrow. She needs, she needs to talk to you about. So I went in there and, there and said, honey, what's, what's going on? And she said, um, well, and one of our family policies were that the children, she's in junior high, that they may not go to the snack shop for lunch. Now, it's cha- it's a, it's, they do other things for lunch now in the junior high down there, but it wasn't that way years ago. And um, we said, you stay out of the snack shop because the university students are not really happy with the junior high students around in the snack shop. And um, so just don't go there. Junior high kids get into a lot of trouble in the snack shop, and I don't want you part of that trouble, so stay away from that. And um, so she said, Daddy, so-and-so is having, one of her good girlfriends is having a, a birthday party tomorrow, and and uh, some of her friends are throwing it, and they want to do it in the snack shop. And, and I know you don't want me to go to the snack shop. Would it be okay if I go to the snack shop? And I said, well, tell me who's going to be there. And you need to ask that question a lot with your kids. Who else will be there? And she told me some of her good friends, and then she told me some three or four of the boys. And I said, aren't so-and-so and so-and-so the ones that are getting in trouble in class all the time? And she said, yes. And I said, and they're going to be at that party? And she said, Yes, and I said, well, I, I'll, I'll let you go, but I tell you what, when those guys start goofing up and start making trouble and start messing things up in the snack shop and, start, and, and, and you know that somebody's going to come over and have to deal with that, I want you to leave because I don't want you tired with their brush. And um, she broke into tears and she said, Daddy, you just don't trust me. That's the first time I've ever heard her say that. And she said, Daddy, you just don't trust me. And I said, well, honey... Well, let me ask you this. Um, have I ever given you advice before this time that's not, that's not helped you? And she said, no. And I said, well, let me ask you this, this question. Um, suppose that I told you to take the keys to the car here and go out and, uh, and get some, some groceries for your mother. And she said, well, Daddy, I can't do that. I can't drive. And I said, but I, I want you driving someday. I don't want, your mom and I don't want to shuttle you around the rest of your life. We want you driving. And, uh, but it's not going to be until you've had driver's ed, until I've driven, uh, you know, in the, in the passenger side with you for a while, and then I'm going to let you go and, and drive. And I said, but, it, it's, uh, but I'm going to ha- you need a lot of coaching through that whole thing, right? She said, yeah. And I said, well, honey, I'm just coaching you right now. You haven't been to the snack shop in a party with those two guys before, and I'm just trying to help you foresee the evil coming and preparing yourself. And she said, I know. And I said, honey, the question is not, why do I trust you? The question is, honey, why don't you trust me? I've given you good advice before. I'm here to look out for you. Why aren't you trusting my judgment and just helping you understand the dangers of what could be happening tomorrow? And she broke into tears and she said, I'm so sorry, Daddy. Please forgive me. And, and it, was, it was a wonderful time. But gentlemen, those, are, those times like that come up often and over and over and over again with our kids. 
We've got to have wisdom in dealing with them. And that's part of being a greenhouse keeper. You're, you're handling the problems that come up. Your notes say, a man's home is not his castle, his hunting lodge, his crash pad, his entertainment center, or his business center. It is a greenhouse for growing spiritual plants. Now, he may do other things in that house like these other things mentioned. But it is where he exercises dominion over the spiritual growth of his family. That's the main thing we do in our homes. And if you're not married, it's the main thing you're working in your own life. And it's the main thing that you're doing with your friends. The main thing is not just hanging out with your friends for the sake of hanging out. The main thing is hanging out with your friends for the opportunity to have spiritual impact in one another's lives. It's iron sharpening iron. It's not purposeless. God has given us dominion, but it's dominion with a purpose. And when God gives us responsibilities in, in relationships, it's for that reason of advancing his kingdom on this earth. And that means there are a couple of things that we can't do. We can't, we can't have our dominion in this greenhouse with self-serving authoritarianism. That is where a man pleases himself by controlling others more than God intends, too strictly. There's some, some fathers who are so rigid and so mean-spirited about it. In fact, that's the second thing. They're ruling others in a spirit that God forbids too harshly. We are to provide that direction, but not in the spirit of Saul. Saul in the Old Testament. Remember how mean-spirited he was with David. You know, it's really hard to play your harp when folks are throwing spears at you. It's really hard to be a music director if people were shooting at you, right? You know, it's hard. And, and, and Saul is a difficult guy to work for. And he's a difficult guy to have as your father. Jonathan had a difficult time with his dad. Jonathan had to dodge spears from his dad too, verbal and physical spears. We can't have that spirit of Saul. Neither can we rule and and have dominion by self-serving permissivism. That's where a man pleases himself by allowing more than God intends. That's being too tolerant. And that is the spirit of Eli, who would not rule his children. And again, here's where we really need our wives, for those of us who are married and have children, to, to give us input on this. I, I cannot tell you how many times, Patty, hopefully they got further and further along, but uh, are apart. But especially when the girls were little and, and sometimes when they got to be teenagers, where I would be addressing an issue with them and Patty would come and say, she, had a, she has a wonderful way of doing this. She'll, uh, after an incident like that where I, I need some feedback. Um, she would say, uh, honey, I, I'd like to talk to you right now, and I just want to know, are you filled with the Spirit right now? <laughs> and I know that if I'm not, I need to be. <laughs> and I'd say, well, yeah, what, what, uh, what do you need to tell me? <laughs> you know, and she would say, well, you know, and she would always do this privately. She would never do this in front of the kids. And she would say, you know, I know what you're trying to do in addressing the girls about this issue, but, but I, I, I don't think they walked away from it with the lesson you wanted them to get. I think they walked away from it with this idea that right now you really don't like them. And I don't think that's what you want to communicate. And, you know, I, I know that's right when, you know, when she brings that up. I, you know, I'm already irritated by how this, hand, how this went and how I handled it and this kind of thing. And, and she'd come and, and I'd say, oh, give me some time with the Lord and then I'll, I need to come out and fix that. 
And so I'd spend some time with the Lord because he just exposed the self-centeredness of my own heart. And one of the things I learned is that relationships are not efficient. You know, I like to do things efficiently. I get to like to get things done and move on to the next thing and all this kind of thing. Relationships are not efficient. Relationships with little girls especially are not efficient. Relationships with teenage girls and adult girls are not efficient. They take a long time. You don't do things quick. Say, well, just do this and do this and do this. You know, you try to handle something efficiently with your wife and just say, well, let's just do this and do this. And, and you hurt her feelings in the, in, in, in the main... And you know what you end up doing? Spending a whole lot more time on resolving all of that than you would have if you just handled it right in the first place. Now, it's, it's not only biblically to handle it, biblical to handle it right in the first place, but logically it makes a whole lot more sense to handle it right in the first place too. If we, don't, if we just deal with our stinking pride... And I'd have to go out to the girls and say, girls, the issue that daddy was dealing with you about is the right issue, and you were wrong in what you did, and daddy was right in correcting you, but daddy was not right in correcting you in the way he did. And I need you to forgive me. Gentlemen, we've got to do that. Our children must see, if we're going to teach them how to live the Christian life right, we not only have to do the right thing ourselves, but when we do the wrong thing, we've got to do the right thing about the wrong thing. We've got to teach them how to make things right with other people and with God. And we can't rule by self-serving authoritarianism or self-serving permissivism. In your notes in point G, say leadership isn't about controlling others as much as it is about controlling our own lusts, our own pride. This is the gospel-centered aspect of biblical dominion. It is joining God's mission of redeeming and restoring fallen men to the likeness of his Son, to the praise of his glory. And a man with gospel-centered dominion will have the essential vision of supervising the cultivation of essential virtues of Christ-likeness in others. We're going to give a real brief summary of that in, in the next lecture. <coughs> Excuse me. So, gospel-centered. That means every, every part of dominion, whether he's given you a job uh, in an office or in an assembly line or working for yourself, blue-collar, white-collar, uh, whatever he's given you a job to do. Our main mission is joining God in his mission of redeeming and restoring fallen people to the likeness of his son to the praise of his glory. My dad um, is with the Lord now, but was a mechanic. My dad could fix anything. He, um, he believed that if a man made it, a man ought to be able to fix it. And, and if you had an appliance in your house or a piece of machinery at your house and my dad couldn't fix it, you just need to junk it because it can't be fixed. And dad could do that. And... But dad's, even dad's mission in doing that, he, he, would, he, he serviced a lot of the appliances and, and things in homes for faculty and staff at BJU. And he'd say, the reason, the reason I do this is because these people are serving God in these ways and I can lift their burden a little bit so they don't have to pay attention to this stuff. I can do this for them so they can do the other stuff. And he's joining them in their mission. That's got to be our spirit in everything we do. We've got to be gospel-centered in the dominion that God has given us. And second, and thirdly, godly dominion means it's grace-enabled. A man must know that his power is from God. We, can't, we cannot do this in our own strength. In fact, the stuff we do in our own strength usually blows up in our face. And it's designed to do that by God. A man must know that his power is from God. God, God point A there, God, God's will can never be accomplished without God's power, without his grace. And this is where we get our hope. 
It's not just God has given us all these responsibilities. You know what he says? He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So it doesn't matter what I'm doing, whether I'm dealing with a hard thing with my daughter or we're trying to deal with our finances. What are we going to do with our finances? Or I'm dealing with a hard thing at the university and I've got to deal with a student and his parents or whatever. It doesn't matter how hard the thing is. God said, I will never leave you. There's a lot of hope in that. And he gives us his grace. Our lives ought to have a stamp of the supernatural upon them. Here's, here's Paul's testimony. By the way, I think the reference might be wrong. Uh, transposed there in your notes. Just check that out. 1 Corinthians 15.10, not 10.15. Here's what Paul says. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. What was he? Man, he's an amazing apostle. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But that grace was not bestowed upon me in vain. It was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And this reinforces an important part of the Christian walk. And that is that God does this, but he requires us to have a part in it. He gave Paul the grace, but he told Paul, you've got to use this grace. But then Paul said, he gave me the grace, and I labored in the grace, but he even gave me the grace to labor in the grace. God does it all, but he expects us to do our part. Paul said, everything that you see is by the grace of God. And if a man is ruling without any conscious, conscious is an operative word there in that sentence. If if a man is ruling without any conscious dependence upon God in prayer and Bible study, his dominion will not bring blessing to those he oversees. When when people bite into our lives, and this is not true for me 100% of the time, or I, I don't even want to think about the percentage of time. But when people bite into our lives, when they intersect us, when people bite into your lives, they need to taste God. Next point, if a man's power is not supernatural, he cannot expect supernatural results. If he is sowing to the flesh, he will reap destruction. That is a promise. He that soweth to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. That is a promise from God, and he will fulfill his promises. But... If he sows to the Spirit, he will reap life everlasting. He'll reap life that tastes like eternal life. So let's talk about what it means to understand grace. You've already seen 1 Corinthians 15.10 here. I want us to look at 2 Corinthians 9.8. Paul says, And God is able, and think of this in your responsibility as men, in the dominion God has given you, whether it's dominion over your room, dominion over your car, Um, dominion over um, other people in your home. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you always, having all sufficiency in all things, can abound to every good work. That's an amazing promise. You You know what that says to me? That if I need... If, if, if whatever responsibility is put in my hands right now, whatever problem I'm trying, trying to solve and that is overwhelming me, that if I needed every ounce of grace in the universe to accomplish it, God would line up his heavenly dump trucks in my backyard and dump all of the grace of the universe in my backyard so that I could have all grace abounding toward me in that, in all sufficiency, in all things. It's an amazing promise. It's the kind of God we have, gentlemen. 
He's called us to heavy things, but look what he's given us to do that. Philippians 2.13 doesn't use the word grace, but probably is one of the best definitions of grace there is in the Bible. For it is God which worketh in you by his grace to both will, creating this desire, this willingness in us, and to do, giving us ability of his good pleasure. Have you ever had a responsibility and you didn't want it? Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, God's grace will create the desire in you to do what he's given you to do. And not only will he create the willingness in us, that desire, he will work in us to create the ability to do it. This is what grace is. Someone has said, grace is God giving me the desire and the power to do his will. That is a phenomenal definition of grace. Actually, it's divine enablement. Well, how does that work? Well, God says, I'm able to make all grace abound toward you so that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, can abound to every good work. God is saying, I will give you all the grace you need to do my will. And, and his will is basically a couple fold here. Our sanctification, he, is, he has a will that you and I become what we ought to be, that we be what we ought to be, and, and service that we, ought to, that we do what we ought to do. And whether you are whether you are just started, started out marriage, whether you are just starting with children, whether you are looking for marriage, whether you are a new pastor, as our pastor is here, or whether you are our pastor emeritus, as our past, all of these have challenges to them, overwhelming challenges to them. But God says, I give you grace to, do what, to be what you ought to be in your sanctification and do what you ought to do in your service. And I'm able to make all of it abound toward you so that you always having all sufficiency can abound to every good work. But Satan doesn't like that. And he has a couple of things that he uses to try to get us out of God's will. Temptations and trials in particular. Temptation, Romans 5.20. Paul says, where sin did abound, what? Grace did much more abound. That's a wonderful thing. Not only in salvation, but where I am being harassed by my own lusts, harassed by the world, harassed by Satan himself, where that sin is abounding, grace is much more abounding. And it's kind of like this. Back when I was a student, I don't think it's this way. I haven't heard this complaint for a lot of, a lot of years, but back when I was a student, and some of the rest of you were students, um, there was a lot of work that needed to be done in the plumbing and the water delivery systems. And uh, you'd be in the shower. And I, I like my showers hot. I like them about two notches under scald. And so I'd, I'd, get that, I'd get that shower just all aligned exactly the way I wanted it. I mean, really nice and hot. And then somebody else would come into the shower next to me and turn on the water. Whatever they turned on, you didn't get. If they turned on the cold water, you didn't have any cold water. And if they turned on the hot water, you didn't have any hot water. And so you would, as soon as, as soon as somebody would do that, in fact, even when somebody flushed a toilet or urinal, what did they say? Hot water! <laughs> you know, because if you're in the shower, you're going to get hot water. And that was a nice warning because it, you know, it saves for the uh, scorching on your back. And um, 
But, but as soon as somebody would do that and they'd take some of that cold water, you'd, you'd jump out of the way and you'd, you're over there, you know, trying to get this thing uh, even out again. And uh, then you'd enjoy it until somebody else did something else and then you'd jump out of the way and try to even out. And this is what God is saying here. It does not matter how much temptation Satan throws your way. It does not matter how many trials come your way. And he's trying to throw cold water onto your life and get you out of God's will. God says, I will increase the hot water and make it possible for you still to do my will. This is an amazing provision for us. That's why our dominion, our responsibility taking, our rulership must be grace-enabled. We've got to have God's grace. Where sin is abounding, grace is much more abounding. And that is never truer than in our salvation. And there may be some men here this morning who, who do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you're still bearing all of the weight and the guilt of your sin. And you know something is wrong, and you know life isn't working, and you know something is, it's, 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 like, it's like, life is like eating cardboard. There just isn't the flavor in it that seems to be there. Well, that's because we're sinners. All of us have sinned, Paul said, and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of eternal life, but, but God has given us a gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And if we acknowledge that we are sinners and that we deserve hell. Pastor, I remember Pastor Vaughn telling his testimony of his conversion at age 25 or so in the military that he'd always understood from his preacher father that there was a hell, but it wasn't until he realized that he deserved that hell himself that he cried out to God and said, have mercy on my soul. I need Salvation. I need forgiveness of this. And that's what God says. If we call upon his name, he will forgive our sins. And that doesn't mean you're perfect from that point on, but it means that he takes our sins and his own body on the tree, on the cross. And he died the pen- and paid the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to pay that penalty. And if you don't know Christ in that way, you haven't seen this grace in your life, this amazing provision for you. Then I hope you'll seek one of us out here, maybe the person who brought you or somebody else in in the church here, and say, I I really need to know about this. It makes all the difference in the world. Eternally, it'll make the difference. It makes all the difference in the world now. And I hope that will be your case. Where sin is abounding, grace is much more abounding. But also, Satan would like to use the trials of our life to get us out of the will of God. You know, here, here Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 7 to 10, he's talking about how he, you know, he's, he's been serving the Lord and, and, and now he's got this physical, we think it's probably a physical affliction of some sort. And he said he, he besought the Lord, he, he begged the Lord three times to take it away, and the Lord said, no. But I will make my grace sufficient for you. And while all of this physical affliction is making it much harder to do right, God says, I'm just going to turn up the hot water of my grace. We'll even it out and you can still do what I want you to do. He didn't change the physical affliction. He added his grace to it. Well, if you take on the extra responsibility or the responsibilities that we're supposed to be taking and and then we have the extra trials of family difficulty or health problems or financial problems, and I think all of us are going to have some significant financial problems in the years ahead, in the months ahead, if the way things keep going here. 
We're going to need a lot of grace from God. And he's going to turn up the hot water. And, and we may not be eating everything we're eating right now, but we can still have the grace of God and be content with what he puts in front of us because of the grace of God. Well, what happens when we don't have this grace? When, when we're exercising our dominion without this grace, this provision from God, what happens? Well, in Hebrews 12, Paul says, oh, I gave away who wrote that, I'm sorry. That, that's supposed to be a secret. Hebrews 12. Looking diligently, he says, beware lest any man fail of the grace of God. Don't fail this grace. He's got it for you. Don't, don't fail to use this. Lest, and here's what happens, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. And lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau who for a morsel of meat sold his birthright. What happens if we're not using this grace that God has? And the grace is just like that faucet. The, the, the water in our homes is right there in the faucet. It's ready to go. All you've got to do is turn on the handle, and the water comes out. The grace is here, gentlemen, for us. But God has to give it to us, and he will. And I'll show you how he does that in just a few minutes. But it's there for us to use. Don't fail to use it. That's what the warning is here. Because several things will happen. First of all, if you fail to use the grace of God and rely on the grace of God, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to get bitter. I think it's fascinating that Paul should tell us in Colossians 3, 19, that husbands love your wives and be not bitter against them. What is happening? Well, husband, you know, he's supposed to be the ruler in this home and she's supposed to be doing what he expects to be, be done and this kind of thing. And she's not doing this. She's not doing that. She's not meeting his needs here and she's not doing that. What happens? And if you don't have the grace of God for that kind of a trial, you're going to get bitter. And Paul warns us, one of the big problems a man's going to have is that he's going to get bitter against his wife. Because he starts saying, it's not fair. I do this and this and this and she doesn't do that. And I do this and this and the kids don't do this. Bitterness, the seed of bitterness is that thought. This is not fair. I remember the first time I heard that from Kirsten. She was about five again, and it was Christmas time. And uh, one of the grandmothers had given the girls a really beautiful Christmas storybook. And Angie, who was three at the time, our second daughter, was lying on the living room floor and she was reading the pictures, you know, going through that book. And she was just really having a wonderful time with that book. Well, Kirsten, who's five, had decided that Angie had had it long enough. And Kirsten swoops into the room like a vulture and grabs that book and just takes it with... uh, And World War III broke out in our home. I expected a mushroom cloud any minute. I mean, they, they were going at it tooth and claw. And um, so I figured out what was going on there and, and made some arrangements. And, 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 then I, and, and then I talked to Kirsten. And I said, Kirsten, and, and I, I took it away from Kirsten. And, and um, she stomped her foot. And it's the first time she ever did that, too. She stomped her foot and she said, Daddy, that's not fair. I said, young lady, there are two things we've got to talk about. And I picked her up and carried her back to the bedroom. And I sat on the, on the, on the bed and I, I, I put her facing me. And we were talking here eyeball to eyeball. And uh, she's, she's sobbing because she's thinking some uh, chastening is coming here in a minute. And um, I said, honey, there are two lessons you've got to learn here this morning. One is never, 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 never stomp your foot. 
And, and by the way, you've got to teach your kids that. They don't stomp their foot. They don't whine. They don't pout. They don't throw a temper tantrum. Because what a kid is doing when he's doing that is trying to get you to obey him. He's just saying, obey me, obey me, obey me, obey me. And you've got to correct that thinking. Said, I, I said, have you ever had a spanking before? She said, yes, Daddy. And she's expecting one right then. I said, did it hurt? Yes. I said, honey, if you ever stomp your foot again, you're going to have a spanking harder than you've ever had. Harder and harder and harder and harder and harder and harder than you've ever had before. Don't, you don't ever want to stomp your foot again. Yes, Daddy. And she's 30-some now, and she hasn't stomped her foot since. She really, <laughs> she really got the lesson. I said, that's the first lesson. The second lesson is this. You said it doesn't, ha- it, that's not fair, Daddy. I said, and she said, it's not. If Angie gets it, I should get it. I said, honey, you've got to learn something, and, and I want to teach you from God, and that is it does not always have to be fair. I said, your mommy and daddy love you very, very much. We love you. We do not love Angie more than you, and we don't love you more than Angie. And we're, we're, we love both of you very much the same, and we, we want to be as fair as we know how to be with both of you. But I want to tell you something that from God, that there are a lot of things that are not going to be fair. And she said, well, yes, Daddy, but if Angie gets it, I should get it. And I said, honey, let, let me ask you. She said, that's not fair. And I said, honey, let me ask you a question. Was it fair for Joseph to be thrown into prison um, for not sinning or, or to, be, to be sold into slavery by his brothers for, for checking on his brothers and obeying his dad? Is that fair? She said, no, Daddy. I said, was it fair for Daniel to be thrown in the lion's den for praying? She said, no, Daddy. And I said, was it fair for Jesus to die on a cross when he wasn't a sinner? She said, no, Daddy. And I said, well, honey, the lesson from God is it doesn't have to be fair, but you have to do right anyway and be sweet about it. And gentlemen, there's, there's a whole crowd out there, and our hearts want to join them in that everything has got to be fair or, or we're up in arms. You try to spend your life trying to make everything fair, and you're going to be one angry, bitter guy. It's not going to be fair. But where Satan tries to throw cold water in your life by unfair situations, God says... I'll make the grace sufficient for you. I'll just increase the grace. He gives grace in the trials. And if, and, if, and if you don't take it, then the first thing that happens is that you get bitter. Second thing that, that, that the writer here says happens is that you become susceptible to moral temptation. Because bitter people who don't like the way life is going, life is boring, life isn't working out the way, life is whatever, those kind of people are looking for something to feel good. And the two quickest forms of pleasure known to man are eating and sex. And when life's been out of shape because things aren't going the way you want it to, and, and they don't go the way we want it to, the world does not revolve around us, it revolves around God. And we start getting the least bit bitter and the least bit dissatisfied and discontent with our lives and lazy and that kind of thing. And we are sitting ducks for moral temptation because it makes us feel good right now. Just like eating does. You know, why is it after a hard night's study or in the middle of a hard night of study, um, students and others of us who have refrigerators um, in our homes, we, we go to a refrigerator. We go to the refrigerator or to the vending room to get something nutritious? <laughs> no. We get something, we put something in our mouth because it makes us feel good right away. Sex is like that. And a lot of people get into, they, they get, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've dealt with guys who get into pornography because they're, they're out of sorts with God, they haven't been in the Word. 
and they're bored with something or they don't want to study and they're, they're upset about this or that thing and like, like a chocolate bar, they go back to the sex and the pornography. It makes them feel good. Well, if you don't have the grace of God, you'll give in to that temptation. And the writer here says that beware lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up defile you, uh, uh, springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. By the way, I didn't touch on that. If you start saying it's, if you start feeling it's not fair, it's not long before you start telling other people this is not fair. You defile everybody else once you start getting bitter. When somebody comes up to you and says, "Can you believe they did that?" So-and-so did this and this, so-and-so. You, you are talking to a bitter person right there, folks. You've got ministry right now. Join God in his mission in redeeming and restoring a fallen purpose to the person to the likeness of his son to the praise of his glory. Don't add fuel to his fire. So, you know, I understand it looks like some things aren't going real well for you and you're not looking at that. Let's, let's talk about where God might be in this picture. He knows that. And maybe there is something we should do about it, but let's do it on our knees And let's not do it by complaining to one another. And let's surrender to God. If he doesn't want to change this, that's his business. And he's doing something in us. Bring God into this picture. This is about joining God in his mission. Lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, moral susceptibility and moral temptation here, or temporal values like Esau, who for a morsel of bread sold his birthright. Here, here, uh, here's Esau. Jacob is able to get the birthright for just a bowl of chili, basically. Because Esau didn't value what was really, really important. He had temporal values. And you know what? A person, I've seen this happen so many times. I've seen, I've seen young people get bitter against God or, or a, a spouse get bitter against the other spouse. And it's not long before they're doing some immoral things. And, and then it's, the next step is just chuck it all and do the most... The, the, the most pleasurable thing, and they make a lousy decision, and they take off and they, and they marry somebody else, or they divorce this person, or they quit school, or they whatever. They're making lousy decisions here. They have temporal values like Esau. They'll throw away the important thing for something that isn't worth it. Now, how does that happen? What well, has to do with your values? When I was a little boy, first grade, I learned the value of the different values on... on um, pieces of money. I learned that a dime was worth 10 cents and a nickel is five and a quarter is 25 and all that kind of thing. Well, I got a brilliant idea one day and I came home and I was looking at my piggy bank and I was looking at my brother's piggy bank sitting next to mine and I thought, I got a good idea. And so I convinced my brother, my younger brother, who did not have the value, did not have the benefit of higher education did not know the value of these, piece, of these coins. And so I traded him. I convinced him that a nickel was worth more because it was bigger. And I traded him all of his puny dimes and gave him these big shiny nickels. And, and man, I have never had an investment get that kind of return that fast. <laughs> and I was really thrilled. Well, my brother was thrilled too because he got all these big shiny nickels. And so he went and told mom how wonderful this was. Well, I hadn't counted on that because my mother does have the value of higher education, benefit of higher education, and uh, she she treated it treated it as if I had stolen from my brother, which, which I had, and I paid a lot of interest on my rear end um, for that little transaction and had to pay it all back. Now, why could I rip my brother off? 
Because he didn't know what was really valuable and what was not. And when you don't have the grace of God, a sinful heart starts making trades and gives away very valuable things for things that are not valuable at all. And we get ripped off. And Satan laughs all the way to the bank for what he just did. And we're left with half of what we had before or less. Because of temporal values. What is happening here? This is a man operating without the grace of God in the trials and the temptations of life. Well, how do we get that grace? Well, Paul, Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, that God resisteth the stubborn... The word proud there means stubborn. And boy, isn't that familiar ground to us? (laughs) Familiar territory for me, stubbornness. God resists the stubborn. But he gives grace to the humble. How do you get more grace? How do you turn on the faucet and get the grace to come out? You humble yourself. You humble yourself in that temptation when, when you're ready to click on that URL, when you're ready to talk dirty to this person, when you're, re- when you're starting to think about this other woman. What do you do? You turn on the faucet. You say, God, I humble myself unto you. This is, I, I, I do not want to do wrong. I want to do the right thing and honor you. And you know what happens? The moment you turn on the faucet and humble yourself, you get grace from God. And most of us have experienced that. I mean, all of us experienced that when we got saved. But perhaps in many other times when we've come forward at a, at a, at a revival meeting or we've come forward at a camp or we've come forward at a ser- Sunday morning service and we've bowed at the altar here and we've surrendered some aspect of our life to God and we've, we've, we've let Him win and we get up off our knees after humbling ourselves and, and we feel like, whoa, I can do this. Where did that come from? That's grace. That's God giving grace to a humble man. God says, I'll give you the desire to do my will and I'll give you the power to do it. Just humble yourself. And because, you know, we hear about the male ego, it's just raw pride. And we don't want to be, we don't want to be the ones coming down the aisle and we don't want to be the ones apologizing to our family. We don't want to be the ones stepping out and saying, you know, we need to start family devotions. It's our raw pride that doesn't want to do that. And we don't get any grace. But every time you bow to God, And surrender yourself to him. He dumps a whole dump truck load of grace in your lap. And you can do what he's given you to do. And even want to. Because of his grace. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That word resist is a military term. It means to surround, to conquer. It was in the the Bible times when, when an army was trying to um, take over a city. They would put it under siege. They would surround it, cut off its water supply, its ammunition supply, other people coming in to help them, cut off their food supply, and eventually bring that city to its knees by starvation. We see many examples of that in the scriptures. Samaria, most notably. That's, that, is that, that is this word, resisting the city, surrounding them to conquer it. And here's what God does. When you and I are stubborn, not us, the people we disciple out there, when they're stubborn, here's what God does to them. He he rolls out his cannon, surrounds them, fires all at once, and the bottom drops out, and they're saying, what's going on? And God says, I'm resisting a stubborn person. That's exactly what he's doing. 
But he says, I give grace to the humble. And you humble yourself under God. And gentlemen, you and I can get everything we need to do everything that is in his will. It's amazing. So in summary, the following must be conscious themes in our own thinking and in the disciple-making of our sons and other men. And I didn't have sons to do this with. I taught my daughter this little diagram about grace in fifth grade. First time I did it was with Kirsten. I took her out to McDonald's. And we didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> we, we may have split a hamburger that day or something, but I wanted to, to do something special, and that's about as special as we could do. And I took a little pad of paper and I drew this for her. And I explained to her how she could get grace from God to do hard things. I want to tell you something, gentlemen. That little girl used this, this thing of grace over and over and over. And her, she did some things as a 7th grader and as an 8th grader that are astonishing. Because she knew how to get grace from God. You teach this to your kids. Our kids need to know how to get grace from God. I've got sons, grandsons who need to learn how to get grace from God. They must frame our essential vision of what it means to be a man. And that is that the essence of biblical manhood is godly dominion or responsibility taking. Godly dominion, the godly portion of that means that it is God-fearing. I see God in this picture. It is gospel-centered. I use this dominion to advance his mission on the earth. And it's grace-enabled. I cannot do this on my own. How does that essential vision of godly dominion flesh itself out in godly character of that man? What, is, what does it mean, what does it look like when God is redeeming and restoring the likeness, the likeness of his son to the praise of his glory? We're going to touch on that in the next session. And we're going to talk about the essential virtues here. Some of you were in the seminar last, last summer. We'll do a real quick overview here. Because if, if you, you and I, if God is on a mission to redeem and restore fallen people to the likeness of his son to the praise of his glory then we've got to know what that likeness to his son looks like. We've got to know it so well, we eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff. So we know when we see our kids misbehaving, it isn't just, no kid of mine's going to lie like that. That's not why we deal with them. We deal with them because they're manifesting a character that is not like Jesus Christ. There's no self-control in that child right now. There's no godliness in her. That's why we correct that misbehavior. We've got to, we've got to know what the essential virtues look like in order to join God in his mission on this. So we'll do that after the break. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.